Grand Touring Motorsports started as a social group of car enthusiasts, but we've expanded into all sorts of motorsports disciplines, and we want to share our stories with you. Years of racing, wrenching, and motorsports experience brings together a top-notch collection of knowledge and information through our podcast, Break Fix. Hey everyone, Kruchi Farrick here, and with me today, filling in for Brad, is Mountain Man Dan. And in this episode of Break Fix, we're going to be speaking with Garrett Walls, who some of you may recognize from Chaz's Used Auto Parts, and also happens to be a GTM sponsor, winning our Sponsor of the Year Award back in 2018. We're probably not going to talk too much about used parts or the yard, but instead we plan to dive into a conversation about the world of dirt track racing. And with that, welcome to the show, Garrett. Hey, thanks. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Before we jump into dirt track racing, why don't you tell us a little bit about the family business, the history of Chaz's? My great-grandfather had business. We've had it for generations and generations. We've pretty much since like horse and buggy, really. Like the airfield in World War II, they used like fly planes in and then they would fuel them up and they'd go either cross the ocean or jump on the carrier. Then I guess like the 50s or 60s, it got switched over to a salvage yard. I think it was Fair Brothers first. And then it ran over to Martell's. And then I want to say like 83 or 84, my grandfather bought it. And then from 83, 84 to 95, my father ran it, but it just wasn't under his name. And then 95, he finally bought it for my grandfather. So my father started 25 years ago. July 1st was the 25th anniversary. That was just a couple days ago. He bought it off of my grandfather when it was Martell's. Now it's Chaz's, like I said, his whole life. And I've done it my whole life, so I really don't see myself going anywhere else. Yeah, and I'm kind of stuck here. Prior to Chaz's ever becoming a sponsor for us, I had a fairly decent history of coming up to their yard and pulling parts. Chaz's is a new pull yard. It's not one where you have to have input, although they do have the size of his parts for you. Their yard's one of the nicer yards, in my opinion, in this area because they keep it fairly well organized. It's not full of mud holes and everything you have to walk through when out to the cars. And the prices have always been good, and the customer service is great. And I think the one question everybody wants to know, is Chaz short for something? Yeah, Charles. Yeah, that's his first name. Oh, there yeah. you go. Very cool. Which actually leads us into our next part of the conversation. When did you actually start dirt track racing? In 2013 is when I started driving late model. 2012, I ran go car for half a season, and then 2013, switched over to run a late model for a full season. I ran until about 2016 or 2017, and then I took a break for like three, four years, and then finally jumped back in. It it was going to be full-time this year, but now with the coronavirus, it's kind of got everything messed up. So this hasn't even been a full season either. I hear that congratulations are in order. You won your first race. Yeah, very first. I I haven't even won qualifying either, or I haven't been top on time trials either. This is the first ever win in general. I mean, besides go-karts. Go-karts. I won when I was doing it up in Susquehanna Speedway. I won my first race in go-karts, very first race that I ran and then didn't win any after that. So what would you say compelled you to get into the sport? What what, what drove you to it? Uh, my dad's been doing it his whole life, my whole life. So it's kind of just, it, it's a family thing. Our whole family's done it. I mean, he started it 06, 08, something like that. I mean, a, a while ago. So he ran 100 cars first. Between him, my Uncle Mike, they were back and forth every weekend first and second and being there seeing that you know it's just really nice afterwards then late models started becoming kind of bigger and bigger so he jumped up into late models 358 stuff for a little bit and then i got 13 he's like you know hey we're gonna go ahead and get you a car so i jumped into 358 i think it was either that year or the next year he jumped into doing super late models like 400 cubic inch stuff 
like they run like Lucas Oil or about laws. And he jumped into doing that for like a year or two, kind of pulled out. The competition wasn't really as, as nice as it was in 358. It's not really, I don't know how to say it. The 358 stuff is just more fun. It's, it's just more fun to run in than the Super League stuff, you know, in his eyes anyway, which I can see that. We, we, we've known more people in the 358 stuff and kind of, it, it's like a family. You know, racing's like a family too, so you know how it is. Let's unpack that a little bit because you just threw out a lot of different terms that some of our listeners probably aren't going to be familiar with. I heard Thunder Cars, Late Models, Super Late, 358, 400, and on top of that, I'll probably throw in Outlaws. So can you explain the difference between all of them? As far as Late Model goes, you have Super Late Model, 358 Late Model, and crate late model crate late model is just like a 604 crate so like 400 horsepower 450 horsepower with a crate motor in it most times gm 604s and for those that don't understand 604 is the cubic inch size of the engine and what's the difference between a late model and a super late what makes what makes the difference there is it the year of the engine or something else so the uh late model or limited late model or 358 late model like late model sportsman another thing we call them they just have a 358 motor basically a 350 chevy or i don't know what kind of ford motor they use for them but they're just like their your limit is 358 cubic inch some of them are like 360 cubic inch so you can run a dodge motor most of it just chevy 350s that are bored out super late model they are kind of loose on their uh, cubic inch size because some people run all the way up to a 440 and then some people don't run anything over 400 but they're all aluminum where the 358 stuff all steel steel head steel block and then the uh, super lakes all aluminum so for the for the folks listening i mean if you if you googled world of outlaws cars it's kind of the traditional dirt track car they're kind of a cigarette car or they look like a shoe big giant wing on top you know the kind of the classic dirt racer but these late model cars you're talking about they're actually tube frame chassis cars yeah and in your case, they kind of look like, I hate to say this, an 80s Camaro. They have that sort of wedge shape to them. Go and Google and look up, just look up like World of Outlaws late models or Lucas Oil late models and you'll see what they look like. World of Outlaws, that's a big organization that runs this community. Kind of like how NASCAR is, but for late models, obviously. Between them and Lucas Oil, they're both more than the same, separate brands, but they do the same thing. But what about the Thunder Cars? What do they look like? Thunder Cars were basically just anything taken off the road, really. Like a um, like a rear-wheel drive, big body car taken off the road. Old Crown Victorias kind of were in it. Most of it was really just like a third-gen Camaro or Fox Body Mustang or, you know, something like that thrown together with like a Chevy 350 or a Ford 5.0, you know, something like that. They were just kind of thrown in the car and rolled with. Because obviously you're running in basically a spec class. What kind of horsepower are those cars putting down? The 358s are about 550, 600 around there. So it's not, it's not a lot, but it's not a little bit either. How much do they weigh in at? 2,300 pounds to 25. Depends. It also depends on the track. So some tracks are you're allowed 2,250. Some tracks you're allowed 2,350. I think my home track is 2300 you're allowed because you're lightest. Uh, and then the heaviest you can be is like 25 or 2550. That weight, is that after you come in after a race with depleted fuel or is that weight before you start the race with a full tank? That's after the race, depleted fuel, and whatever mud you have in the car. You know, sometimes you can pick up 20 pounds of mud and actually be 10 pounds light and still pass test because you picked up 20 pounds of mud. Obviously, you go to impound after the race is over. They look over the car. <laughs> 
you know, it sounds very similar to some of the club racing and regionals and things like that. We've heard a similar story from guys with, you know, formula cars and, and spec cars. They're brought to impound or, you know, they're looked over. If somebody's suspected of cheating, they're probably torn down. Is the same true in dirt track? I mean, they still have like a grace to it. You might have rolled over the scale of 22.9 instead of 2300. If the car seems like it's all fine, you know, there's nothing like out of whack enough, they'll, they'll let you roll most tracks. Most tracks around here, a lot of your smaller tracks are like that. Now, if you were running a big show, if you're like one pound light, they're, you're, you're disqualified. As far as tech and motors and stuff, it's really only if somebody kind of calls you or if they suspect they have a high suspicion of you cheating, then they'll check your motor. Somebody can call you out and kind of put money on it at your cheating so what happens if they protest and they lose do you get that money i'm not 100 percent sure how that works i know i thought how it used to be was if somebody put thousand dollars down said you're cheating and you were cheating then they kept the money and then if you weren't cheating then you got their money it's how it used to be kind of like gambling i guess you know <laughs> what's the safety equipment like fire suit fire shoes helmet on device just now they started to require fire suppression systems they have like little heat elements in them that detect a certain temperature one runs in the cab the other one runs the fuel tank i think if one of them goes off they both go off but i'm not too sure then obviously just tube chassis or roll bars and all that stuff do you guys run carburetors or efi carburetors yeah, everything's carbureted. Even the super stuff is carbureted. Because the big thing, they're not running gasoline. Uh, you guys run No, we run alcohol. Yeah, so we run alcohol. Vodka, gin, what are we talking Whatever about? Whatever you want. Whatever makes it go fast. Um, pure green. Yeah. We're up in the mouth. Yes. Right. Making shine, <laughs> huh? <laughs> <laughs> a, drum, a drum alcohol is about 300 bucks. So you'll go through one of those. I think I think it took us like two races to go through a drum alcohol. Wow. And that, that, but that was with a full tank. So we had 25 gallon in the tank and then 55 in the drum. Let's talk about the driving experience. What's it like being out on track? Definitely different. I mean, it's, you guys know how it is too. It's just a rush, but especially when you're starting with like 20 other cars and if you're mid pack, even if you're, if you're up front, my, my feature race, my final race, it was only six cars and it was still just like a rush. It, it's always an adrenaline rush and you guys know how it is. It might be a little bit different you know, between road course and here, because you guys don't only really run into each other, where in dirt track, you use each other to, to give faster running into each other, use each other as a barricade or a guardrail, you know. The whole term rubbing's racing. Rubbing's racing. That's, that's, that's right, dirt right. It's not the same as like hit to pass, right? The the bumping and the grinding <laughs> is because guys are sliding all over the place because of yeah. traction and stuff like that. Contact is not required. It's the inevitable conclusion there. Yeah, it just happens. You and a bunch of guys go in the corner at 100, 120 mile an hour. And thoroughly, we estimate like 120 mile an hour on the straightaway, which you run as your top speed. So when you enter the corner, you're probably doing 100, 90, 100 mile an hour. And depending if you're on the top or the bottom, that also depends on your speed. You can get all the way down to 60, 70 mile an hour, where you can be still probably floating like the 90 mile an hour range around the top side. There's multiple lanes to a track. Like as, as far as road course goes, or even just oval, it's kind of like a one lane track. But as far as dirt racing, you can have a one-lane track. You can have a three-lane track. You could be able to fit four cars on some tracks. Depends on the track conditions, the weather, if it rained. If it rained five minutes before you went out or if it rained five hours before you go out, you know, that changes everything. They got a special, like, dirt track Zamboni that comes out to smooth it out for you guys, or it is what it is? Well, they're, they're supposed to. It's kind of hard to smooth them out. It's not asphalt. It's not just smooth, you know. I mean, there's potholes and stuff in asphalt, but dirt is just hard to work with. And, like, sprint cars and stuff, they'll, they'll run up a track 
like crazy because they've been so much. They don't weigh anything. It's been around. Like you get some small tire cars, something like they call them scramble cars. That's like your front wheel drive stuff off the road, you know, neons, cobalt, stuff like that. And them small tires are there for traffic too. So, you know, we run like 28 inch wide tires, 29 inch wide tires, and they kind of float over the dirt. Whereas some of that other stuff kind of digs in. They don't create ruts, create berms. You don't have anybody maintaining the track because you got to kind of cut the track up in order to get the moisture down in there. That way the dirt will pack. Like the ideal track to have is one that's got enough moisture in it to where you can have traction. But still at the same time, it's not like it's so muddy that your car is just kind of stuck and locked down, you know? Like Hagerstown, a lot of times you get real slick, acts like ice. Is the more ideal condition for it to be dry dirt or do you prefer it just after it rains and i mean we're talking about dirt here but realistically it's probably more like clay right the problem with like a dry slick is just you, you'll slide around the car doesn't want to grab you, you have no traction like i said I, I like it when it's not like soaked wet or muddy but it's actually got some you know like a little bit of moisture to it so you can still get some traction but when it's dry slick you come out of the corner and you're just spinning wheels to jump back to the track for a minute it's always oval. There's no road course version on dirt that you run. It's always oval. Always oval. So speaking of tires, describe the tires to us. Cause you know, in our world, you know, a lot of guys will start out on a ultra high performance summer tire and then they graduate to some sort of what we call an R compound or a race compound. And then eventually you work your way up to slicks and that's great for asphalt, maximum grip, maximum speed. But in the dirt, what are your tires like? Most of the time they are, uh, they're like 28 and a half inch wide. We run all the way around, except for the right rear. That's 29 inch wide. And that's actually like a softer tire. Like they make it out of some sort of special rubber than the other three. We all run different compounds, 1300 all the way up to like 1600. Compound just determines the softness. So like a 1300 is softer than say like a 1400. Most time we don't ever really run anything over a 13 and a quarter or a 1325. The compounds go up in quarters so like 25 50 75 but yeah we normally just stick to 113 and a quarter um, you would use like a, a harder tire on a slicker track if you're going like a 20 lap race if you're not doing anything over 20 laps you really stick to just the 1300 but that, that also depends on track conditions if you have a slick track that's spitting up dust everywhere then you're going to want to run a 13 and a quarter on your right rear if you're doing a 20 lap race you put 13 and a quarter on a left rear uh, right front your left front doesn't touch the ground so you normally just use that 1300 unlike us in the road world where we have our slicks we have our rain tires their tires they'll actually cut the groove in themselves so they're actually putting the tread pattern they design and siping and things like that to set it up for different conditions there's different tread designs that they can cut into if they want different type of grip is there a tread pattern that's more ideal than another or is it really dependent on the track and, and the conditions let's say a like a motorcycle tread versus a block tread right or that way people can kind of relate to it what what would be better most people just run like a regular block tread i've seen people on the right front they'll run an angle they'll run like an angle tread so they go from one end of the tire to the other. There's these little like extra casting lines from when they when they make the mold and everything. On the edge of the tires, they'll run out at an angle on each end, and you kind of just draw the dots between them two angles that line up from one end of the tire to the other. I and mean, they'll draw those out and make them to an angle tire for the right front. We did that a while ago, but it really I, I didn't notice a difference in it because we run our right fronts as block treads also. 
I haven't noticed a difference yet. So, but there's some people that swear up and down by it, and there's some people that are just like it doesn't matter. Some people say the tread don't matter at all as long as you got threads. Because how our tires come, they come with a like straight tread from the factory from Hoosier. But as far as like people's ideas, you know, they want to do that. That's that's on them. Whether they want to straight across or whether they want to run like an angle tread or if they run angle straight angle, some people do that. And also. Depends on where you're putting the tire. Most time, it's only just block tread. So it's easy. It works. A lot of guys that went to NASCAR started in dirt track. But realistically, the disciplines are similar in the sense that they both are run on an oval. But I think the driving style is completely different. Would you agree? So like asphalt to dirt, driving style is way different. And even just, well, you obviously know oval to road course is also way different as well. But as far as asphalt to dirt, asphalt, you're not sliding around. You got to be able to handle the control, handle the car under a slide whereas nascar or any you know asphalt oval I'm not going to say it's any easier it's more controlled you know nascar you have more control if you need to make a left or a right in the turn you have enough room to do so and you have enough traction that you can kind of just jerk the wheel a little bit and move whereas dirt goes if you're mid slide and somebody spins out in front of you or two cars up you, sometimes you don't have anywhere to go but into them your driving style's got to change. You got you got to change your distance for following. Following distance is really a big thing. You know, asphalt you can be right up behind them. Dirt sometimes even like five, ten car lengths at times, depending on what it is. I mentioned here previously, dirt track in a way is the it's like the original drift because mm-hmm. a lot of what they're doing is drifting just on dirt. But now drifting's a big thing. All these guys go out road courses and have the cars drifting around. Dirt track's been doing that forever. So it's uh, taking. I think drifting in many ways can get closer to dirt track than like NASCAR and road course. Even rally over in Europe, right? It's the same thing. Anything that's yeah, yeah. off-road with a car, that, you know, not like uh, off-roading in trucks where they're doing, you know, rock crawling and that kind of thing. But, you know, it does conjure this image of, you know, Lightning McQueen. If you watch the first Cars movie where he's like, you got to turn right to go left. I would assume that the driving style is very much like that. You're throttle steering, you're counter steering. You're not just kind of chucking it in there and holding the line, like not to, not to downplay the NASCAR guys, but they're dealing with a lot of centrifugal forces because they're going so fast, right? They're on, a, on that large bowl trying to maintain very high speeds versus, as you said, your highest speed, you know, 120 mile an hour, but you're, you're going sideways on dirt trying to maintain control at 90 mile an hour that's that's pretty impressive you really do i mean the steering wheel is more to the right than it is any other way but i mean still the fastest way around track is as straight as you can keep the steering wheel especially in in late models because they have rear steer on them basically take a four-length drag setup and they shorten up the left side bars on the gas the back of the car will pick up and it'll pull the left side the left wheel it'll start to pull it you'll see it go under not quite under the cockpit, but it'll be right behind the cockpit. Yeah, if you look at any pictures of them when they're turning or when they're, when they're rolling, you'll see the left rear is kicked up real high and the wheel is pulling under the body. You know, that helps rotate the car and set the car over. And the biggest, the big thing about these cars is you have to let them rotate. The cars move a lot. You can feel the car pick up and letting it rotate is just is a really, really big part in it. Your driving style also will, will have to accommodate the car. Depending on the car, depending on the manufacturer, you know, and, and just little stuff like that. Just depends on how the car feels and how you have to set up. I mean, it even goes down to what kind of rear you have in the in the car changes your setup and what kind of shocks you have, you know, what brand of shocks you have when the car changes your setup. It's a lot of little things will change your setup. I mean, even just like an inch of stagger will make a difference. My old car, my 06 Rocket, when you go into the corner, you would just slowly let off the gas, ease onto the brake, and then the car would start to rotate itself and set up. You pretty much just run it right out of 
like that. It didn't, it didn't matter where you were. That car just grabbed all the time. Probably, that's probably the best car I ever drove. So are they automatics or are they manuals, paddle shifters? What do you got in there? They're kind of like a power glide, like a direct drive. You have uh, low and high and then reverse with a two-stick trans. But other than that, I mean, they're basically an automatic. Basically, basically just a one gear. You only use high. So I was out here uh, the other night hanging out and looking the car over up close and the transmission itself is a very different concept than what we're used to because even though it's technically an automatic it does not have a torque converter uh-uh. and where the torque converter would sit at there's actually a pulley for a belt drive to come up to run a pump which controls like his power steering his oil, oil power steering and fuel or all run off the pump that's run off the shaft itself for setup stuff the amount of shocks they actually have a shock that mounts in the transmission tunnel connect to it to help give suspension on the transmission itself because the amount of movement the chassis has. interesting so you were talking about applying the brakes in the corner i'm assuming you're left foot braking when you're doing that right you're kind of ruddering the car not taking your foot off of the accelerator and then hit stabbing the brakes and then getting back on right yeah like that's how that 06 car set up you know you, you were easy on the brakes you move the pedals together now this car that i have the 2018 it's a rocket it's uh they call it an xr1 like that's kind of, it's kind of like the chassis to it or whatever or their model, the chassis model. That one is just set up real tight. So you kind of have to abuse the car to make it want to want to rotate right. And you use a lot of three-wheel brake. Essentially, it shuts the right front brake off, so the right front brake won't lock up. So you only have the left side and then the right rear that'll stop, and it helps kick the car sideways. But the car is set up real tight. It kind of pushes up the track, so you have to kind of run hard in the corner and jab the brake to get it to want to kick sideways. And then from there, you're kind of smooth running the brake and the gas together. It's easier to do than it is playing. And all of this happens in a matter of seconds. So it, right. it's like the blink of an eye. It's all going down in one shot. It's very, it's like a dance, you know, with the car and everything. I get it. it that's, it's cool. And I don't think the audience probably appreciates that, that there's a lot going on in the cabin of that car. You're just kind of watching it, you know, it's going around in circles, making a left turn, making another left turn, making another left right. turn. You're busy in there. It's not a cakewalk, that's for sure. When I first started doing it, I caught on pretty quick, but it wasn't, uh, you don't just get in the car and roll. Like, you know, a lot of people think they can just get in the car and go, but it's not, it's not as easy as it looks. I mean, it took me a couple races before I could really keep up with even just the back of the pack. It was kind of couple races in but it, you know the more time you put in something the more seat time you put in something the better you're gonna be very cool tell me about your biggest oops moment on track got a couple of those we also call them code brown moments yeah <laughs> i'm gonna say probably i started uh i started second in a heat race of qualifying it actually was a time trial show so i laid the fifth fastest lap of the night i beat both my father another guy that we help out a good bit and sponsor justin weaver and I was fast on him. He's, he wins there like all the time. So he's a very good driver. But I laid a faster lap than him and I laid a faster lap than my father. And I started started first or second. I know I started on the front row of the heat race. I led like four laps and then got too high up in the marbles and just it just pulled my car up and up towards the wall. I think I ended up finishing like third in the heat race, but it was it was a big oops moment. I got too happy. I got too excited. A little too confident. Yeah, a little too confident. I couldn't control myself. But. <laughs> Kept the wheels on the ground, though, right? Yeah, as long as the wheels stay on the ground, it's you're you're pretty good. Speaking of track conditions, uh, not this week when Garrett won, but the week before, me and some people made it out to cheer him on and support his way from the crowd. Luckily, it wasn't during his class running or him particularly, but a couple of the classes before him, the car actually rolled because the conditions of the track built a little bit of a rut in one corner. The guy came around, caught it wrong. 
just turn up and rolled it like three or four times. So one thing I wanted to add in is, like we mentioned earlier in this episode, he got his first win. So he was talking to me that he got pole position and everything, started and everything, got out there and he dropped back into second place and basically stayed in second majority of because he he was aware of the, the other driver being a very aggressive driver. And they're like, look, you get in front of him, he's going to just try to bully his way back past you the whole time. So not only is it always about leading the pack, but in that particular situation, Garrett stayed in second and kept his distance until the end of the race where he came in and was managed to get by him right there at the end for the victory. And sometimes patience pays off. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one of, like I mentioned before, Justin Weaver, he's, he's big one for patience pays off because you'll be four or five car lengths ahead of the boy. And then two laps to go, he's three car lengths in front of you. You know, he, he knows how to play that mind game. So, I mean, but he's a very good driver. He's been known for years too. And sometimes that's all part of it. It's, it's a mental game as much as it is a physical one. And that's in all the motorsports disciplines, right? Patience is a virtue. And a lot of times planning and waiting for somebody to make a mistake or whatever. And then, you know, you're not running your machine out 110%. You've got some leftover reserve at the end and then you pull it out and you, you get that win. So it's all part of the game. Yeah. Let me ask you this, since you've been doing this now for, let's say, seven or eight years, what's one thing you'd like to see change in the in the dirt track discipline? I don't know. It's, I guess I'm just used to it all, you know. But, I mean, I was I was out of it for three years, too. So a lot of stuff that I come back to is, is just changed. You know, the, the cars are completely different. Just me being out for three years, the cars have changed. You know, you wouldn't think a change in 10 years would have caused. There's really nothing that I would change, I guess how they've been as long as I've known them, you know, the same concepts there. So of the changes you saw during that three year period that you weren't, was it mostly safety, safety related items you saw change when you came back to it? Or was it just the whole designs of the cars and chassis? The only safety thing I seen was just the fire extinguishers. That was it. The big thing that actually I, that I realized is we used to scale our cars. I don't know if you guys ever done, you ever have to do scaling or anything. Yeah, corner balancing. So we used to have to scale our cars. And, I mean, we had all these numbers we had to get. We had ride heights we had to get with. We had – the car had to have so much fuel in it and so much oil in it and so much, you know, it had to have oil in the lines. You had to basically start the car and run it for a little bit before you scaled the car. And you had to have, like, 20-gallon of fuel was recommended. You, you put it on, on a set of scales. You have to have your, your rear percentage needs to be this much. Your left side percentage needs to be this. Your cross weight needs to be this. And you have ride height. You have to measure from – control arm to your bottom of the frame has to be this, you know, stuff like that. But they've, they've done away with scales. Scale is now like, you don't need to do it. Um, now they have these things called spring smashing and you essentially take the shock and you'll put the shock on this machine and it'll smush the spring down and it'll smush like a certain weight. So say like the right front, 2,100 pound of pressure put on or something. And you have to measure how big the spring is smashed like that. But yeah, they completely changed how all that works. That that was the biggest change that you were saying. That was probably the biggest change that I've seen is just how they completely just reworked the cars and the suspension setup and make it so scaling is not useless, but it's just not there anymore. It's not the way to do it anymore. What's it take to run a dirt track car? Maybe I want to jump in and I want to get started. Obviously, you're not going to go and just you know, build one yourself, unless you're running those thunder cars, right? Or something like that. But if you want to get into the sport, let's kind of divide it out. What would it, where would you look for a car? How much would it cost for a car on average? Maybe, you know, not a front runner, something to get in. And what's it cost to enter an event? As far as entering the event, it's just, you, you just pay your kid admissions are like 30 bucks on average as far as track goes. They normally don't charge for a car. You know, you, 
they just bring them in. If you wanted to start with, like, say you want to start just in dirt racing, you just want to get into dirt racing. So the cheapest way is going to be what they call hobby stocks. Some tracks call them different. Basically, what they they're basically what Thunder cars were, but they're more of like you take Fox Body or third gen Camaro or you know something like that, and put 351 Windsor. Some of them run like open motor as well, so you can run 377. You can even run 400, but that's going to be the cheapest way to get in. You cage it. I don't know what their safety regulations are. I mean, I've, I've only ran late model. I've, I started in late model, so I'm not 100% sure on hobby stock stuff. Can't give you a price range of what you start, but I would say as far as just the car and the tools to do it is probably like maybe $10,000 to start. I'm sure you could probably do it for cheaper, but I'm saying just the tools to do it and the car, not including truck, trailer, nothing like that. I would say it's probably like ten to 15000 to start doing that stuff. If you want to go to late model, even just... 358 late model like I'm running. We spend forty to fifty thousand in one car. Wow. Um, between the frames now, it's gone just a bare frame with nothing on it. It's like five to six thousand dollars now. I mean, they, used to, they used to be like twenty five hundred bucks. By the time you get the the rear in it and the star, we priced out a set of shocks with sixty five hundred dollars brand new. Wow. Um, to get a motor built from scratch, you're looking at ten. $15,000. Transmission, they're $1,500. We run carbon fiber drive shafts, which I think they should make everybody run carbon fiber drive shafts. So I guess that's one of the changes I would like to see. But yeah, carbon fiber drive shafts, $800. Yeah, it's like forty to 50000 on one of them. If that's like going for new. If you're going for used, we picked up was a 2018. Uh, we bought that last year at the end of the year. We picked up for cheap. We picked up for under 28000 You know, And that was a race ready. You put it on the track and go. Actually, the, the guy... Let me take it down to two test sessions and test it before I bought it. He said, you know, come down to the test session. You get to drive it, test it, see how you like it. I liked it the first night, so I took it home. He said, before you pay me, come run in another test session and see how you like it. Make sure you still like it. I did. Still liked it. I ended up with it. The tires are about $200 a tire. Um, wheels are 150 to $300. Uh, they don't weigh anything. I mean, they're, they're extremely light. The material they use is very light aluminum, much like what's used on ATVs. You know, people who aren't familiar with four wheels and stuff, how light the aluminum wheels are on that. Very similar with these cars. And then a lot of them, you guys have your bead lockers, aren't they? Yeah, we don't. The right side, we run bead lock. The left side, we run non bead lock. Interesting. My last question, talking about the, the racing part before we get into kind of the last section of the interview, what advice would you give someone that's starting out in dirt track? I would say, you definitely want to get some practice sessions in before you go out and race. Susquehanna Speedway or BAP Speedway, as it's known now, will let you rent the track out. So you can run it with either just you or you can get a couple of people with you. We What we would do is normally every year, we rent the track out in the beginning of the year. Between normally me, my uncle, my cousins, you know, our whole family kind of pitches in. If you can, if you if you can do it, rent the track out. If you never, you know, even if you... Even if you've ran a race car before, I still recommend renting the track out. If you're switching over from like oval or something like that, that helped me a lot. I mean, we ran probably, I probably ran like 100 laps on that track that night that we, when I first started. Yeah. And then once you, once you get the feel for the car, once you know what the car is doing, know how it responds, I would suggest you go to a practice session with other cars on it. So you kind of get a feel for other cars on the track with you because they're most likely going to pass you. If you've never ran with cars before, even just on a practice session, it is still 
a big difference just from running open with nobody there to running with people who've been doing it for years. So yeah, I would jump to a practice session and then open up to a race. Racing is a big, big jump from doing practice because people are a lot more uh, aggressive. aggressive. They're way more aggressive. It's kind of a gift. Do you go into this with any sort of coaching? Because, you know, in the road racing world, a lot of people will start in high performance driving where they've got somebody in the right seat with them, you know, telling them what to do and where to go and where to turn and hit this apex, break here and all that. And, and then graduate to something else, be it time trials and then club racing and then so on down the line. Is there a similar format for dirt track? No, no, it's, it's basically just jump in the car and drive. Yeah, there's no right there's, seat. There's so no right just seat, a single yeah. seat in the vehicle. Uh, yeah. Now, they do have, you can go to a school that Dale McDowell, he has, I think it's like Kentucky or Tennessee, whatever. He goes on racetrack and everything down there and he, he teaches people how to drive. He has one of them two-seat late models. I think what he does is he'll go out on the track with you or one of his instructors go out with you. You run around the track for a little bit and then you switch over to one-seat late model. That two-seat throws the weight off a lot. So then he'll run, you know, like if it's a one-seat late model, you got that run. It's hard to tell somebody when to brake or tell somebody when they need to gas up. If the car is not getting set up right, or if the car's not rotating right, you're going to push. You're going to you're gonna be tight. You, you just got to get in and feel the track and drive. I mean, that's, that's really it. For you getting out on track since there's not much of a coaching like it is on the road course. How much of that did you use just visual perception, watching the guys in front of you, watching where they were turning, watching how far they were kicking? How much of that did you take in when you started driving, of observing how the other guys drove to pick up on that sort of stuff? I'm going to break that down a little bit because, like, you go when you go to the track and you watch the people run, if you've never been in the car before, you don't know what's going on. Like, I'm being dead honest. You don't really know everything that's going on like when, well, when I started I was also you know 12 13 years old before I really ran the car so my dad was trying to show me you know listen to where he picks up throttle listen to where he breaks listen to where he, he pulls off the throttle a little bit or he gets on it hard you know stuff like that you don't realize how much of a difference it makes when you actually drive the car to realize where the throttle is and where the brake is so the, like the first time I actually tried listening to a car without being in the car I didn't really I didn't really pick up where anything was going on you kind of don't get them cues or you can't really you can't really visualize yourself in the car getting them cues or you know when to pick up throttle when to brake after i drove the car and was in the car for a little bit i realized you know okay well he he lets off at this pole or he lets off it at this part of the wall you know use kind of like landmarks and judge where you want to lift williams grove is really good for that because there's like three poles on each corner and you can know how the track is know what pole to lift so that's that's a big thing that that really would change it. Now, since I've been in the car for a while, you know, I have a couple years behind me, I can go to the corner of the track and tell you exactly where I lift and where I pick up at, where I break, you know, and how the car is going to react at that point. Uh, I can go to the track and tell you, you know, yeah, you don't want to run that line because it's going to be slick, or you don't want to run that line because it's going to be way too heavy. And you just pick that stuff up from, from doing it, being there. Even though you guys are competing against each other, there's a lot of knowledge sharing going on in the community because you just said yourself, you know, if somebody asks me where my line is, here it is. But granted, it's always going to be variable based on the dirt conditions and the moisture and the humidity and all that. But is that a fair statement to say, you know, there's a lot of sharing of information going on before you get out there and, and go door to door? But I don't know how your guys' teams, you know, separate teams work together. Like the way the dirt track thing is, if I go to the trailer next to me and I need something, most likely they're going to give it, to, you know, they're going to they're gonna help me out. Like, for example, I had, I had a run in a couple years ago. I bet the front bumper on my car and it was just, it was pretty much unusable. You know, basically kind of knocked me out of the race. We had a boy come like three trailers down. 
He came down, brought us a bumper, said, dude, look, we want you back in the race. Here's the bumper. Go ahead and get the nose back together. We'll help you. They helped us put the nose back together. They helped us get it all back together. Ended up getting on the track. So my dad goes to get ready and break it all down. You know, we get to break it all down. He goes, no, just keep it. We don't, you know, we don't need it. We you're good. We got like three other ones in the trailer. So it, it's a lot of, uh, like I said, I don't know how it is for you guys. I don't know if you guys have like rival teams like that that'll just come to you and help you. Um, but the dirt track community, it's, it's honestly like family, you know, they, they do come and cater to you and help you if you need it. I'll say it being like family, it's one of the things in our environment on the road course, we're always helping people out, even the guys that aren't in the club. But, and, but, uh, one thing I was talking to everybody earlier is, and you and I had mentioned is the fact that one thing that we don't see as much on the road course side is that family temper flair in the dirt track community where it isn't uncommon. They'll come off track and be arguing and yelling. You know, and sometimes it gets to a little bit of a scuffle, but it's one of those things to where there's a lot more. And one of the things that I always tell people for the dirt track is there's a lot of people out there that like NASCAR and they prefer, you know, dirt track as what became NASCAR. But I think there's a very distinct difference between the two. And for me, dirt track, I enjoy going to it because each heat might be, you know, 20, 25 laps. So for 20, 25 laps, these guys are pushing it hard, as hard as they can to get up to the front and do what they can to full position. When NASCAR, you're sitting there for three, four hundred laps just watching them go and surf. So dirt track, I find much more enjoyable. And on the spectator side of it, the great thing is a lot of times it's BYOB. So people will be sitting up in the stands with their, their coolers full yeah. of beer and just enjoying it and getting rowdy. And a great thing about it is it's not much of a difference to be able to go into the pit area and be able to hang out with the drivers and stuff in between rates. I will say I was invited to go once to Lincoln to watch a World of Outlaws race. And, you know, I was hesitant at first coming from my background. But then again, I've said it many times, I have an appreciation for anything with a motor and a way to steer it. So I was like, you know what? Let's go. Let's send it. I want to see what it's all about. And, you know, I took my wife at the times before we had the kids. To Dan's point, it's very family oriented. It's very down to earth, very grassroots racing. But on the same token, it was an absolute hoot to watch. And I couldn't believe how much fun it was. And now, kind of looking back, you know, now that all of us have to wear masks every day, everywhere we go. <laughs> That, that would have been a big plus back then because, man, I think I ate so much dirt and sand. It wasn't even funny, especially with the outlaw cars running. I mean, it was like watching a tornado just being formed right in front of you. But at the end of the day, it was like, wow, this is really cool. This is like raw, pure racing, you know, at its best. Now, you know, it may not be for everybody, but I'll, I'll just say this, you know, give it, give it a try, you know, because you might be surprised you know, what, how it turns out for you at the end of the day. Let's switch gears a little bit. You know, you've been involved with us for a number of years now, just kind of on the peripheral, let's just say, but you've been supporting our, our addiction here to, <laughs> to road mm -hmm. racing. You know, that's been awesome. And you've come out to some events, especially our summer bash events. And I know you've done some ride alongs and I took you out in uh, Bowser's Miata. The, the first mm -hmm. time you came out, yeah. I'll never forget. I was just kind of talking to you, you know, we had the headset on and we're going around. Mm -hmm. It's a Miata. It's like, whatever, you know, we're a Shenandoah circuit. And, and I asked you one point, you all right? And you said to me, yeah, I just never thought we could get this much rotation on asphalt. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, didn't, I didn't realize the car moved like that on asphalt. I mean, I, Describe that experience. Now you've been on a couple ride-alongs. What, what do you think of circuit racing? Uh, I mean, I like it. I was going to do it because it was more affordable for me with my own money to go and do than it would be to do this dirt stuff, so especially with no sponsors. But now, you know, now we got sponsors. We got a couple sponsors that uh, – Mainly the businesses, you know, really helps out. Yeah, as far as the asphalt goes, circuit racing, I, I like it. I enjoy it. It's something different when you're used to oval so much. It's something different to try, and I would still, still like to try it. 
still maybe, you know, build a car or something. I don't know what your guys' season looks like with the coronavirus thing, but I think ours might be just about over, sadly. It's crazy. We've had to delay a lot of stuff, and we have Summer Bash coming up in August. We're, we're actually pushed it this year all the way out to Pittsburgh. Usually we do it at home base, which is Summit Point. You know, everything's changed. Everything's up in the air. It's really difficult. But you talked about coming out and doing road course racing and potentially building a car, and I think a lot of our listeners don't realize – you're actually an avid BMW fan. So how did that happen? Yeah, well, actually it started with my father and then my father got my uncle addicted and then just between my father and my uncle, you know, got me into it. So actually we we're talking about this today. My dad, the reason why he got into BMWs in the first place was because we had one come in the yard that was totaled in the front and back. It was a seven series. It was hitting the front and the back, like real bad, smushed up. And you could still open up the door and get in and out of the car with no issues. So that was the big thing with him with safety. And, you know, they're, they're, they're pretty quick for what they are, especially when they weigh 4,500 pounds or whatever. They're basically boats. It, I mean, they get out of their own way. My M5, I mean, that's a 4,000-pound car, but it doesn't feel like it. I feel like I can I can move that thing around the road like it's a light car. And they look good. That's, that's my thing. I like yeah, so the way they look. So let's talk about your growing BMW collection. So why don't you tell everybody what you got? Do we have enough time? <laughs> anyway, so my daily driver is my M5, 2005. That's an E39. 39, yep. Um, I picked that up in uh, Owens Mill. Some some people that watch this might know Mike Vayner. Yeah, I got it from him. It's actually a German imported, so it's everything's in kilometers, Celsius, and all that stuff. The craziest thing that I, that I realized with it was in Germany, they don't have the clutch safety switch. So you can just get in and start it and roll. That was pretty amazing. I just figured it was just kind of like... Yeah, American cars have a lot of additional safety Yeah, there's a lot of safety to, stuff. Not to, not to talk bad about Americans, but we need the additional things to prevent accidents. That's my daily driver. My TI that I've had for like three years and haven't touched my project car that I'm going to get done eventually. That's an E36 318 yeah, TI, right? Yeah. Yep. Cali top. It's got a canvas roof on it. It's like a really big sunroof, basically. But it opens up. So, like a convertible. My Z3 that I have, my Z3 Coupe, uh, I got that out of Virginia. They're extremely rare as it is. And then, you know, being one from America, I think I read on the internet, it's like 6,000 of them are brought to America and Canada. Just having one is like, I guess, a needle in the haystack kind of thing. Yours is a non-M. Yeah, mine's a non-M. Yeah, mine's a non-M. It's, but it's still got the uh, M54 engine in it, just a three-liter, naturally aspirated. But they're light. They're, I mean, the thing weighs like 2,700 pounds. Do you call it a clown shoe like everybody else? Yeah, it's a clown shoe. The thing's ugly, but it's beautiful to me. So my dad hates My dad's like, man, that thing is hideous. How can you even, like, I'm like but it, it's so ugly, it looks good. You know, that's. I remember the first time, it was shortly after you bought it, I think, you came over to my house to do some shooting, and you drove that over, and I'm like, what is this? Yeah, thing? yeah. <laughs> That was uh that was that was not good getting up the driveway. He's yeah. lowered. <laughs> yeah. So you got those three. Is there a uh, a BMW on the wish list? Like something you really want? Probably E46 M3. But I think the next thing I'm buying is gonna be um gonna be a C6 Corvette. I'm getting away from I'm getting away from just for one car at least. We're talking about building the BMW track car there for a while. Is that still? Yeah. Good? I mean, we still I still have the car. I mean, I walk out going to work and see it every single day. So I don't know. It might get it might get. And that's an E36, correct? E46, actually. Oh, E46, that's right. E25, yeah. But I wasn't for a 3 motor in anyway. Or I was, I was even just looking for another, trying to find a 332. Or a VLS swap. Or a VLS swap. Well, I mean, if we're going to talk about <laughs> if we're going to talk about engine swaps, wasn't there a BMW V12 you had laying around you were planning on doing something with? Yeah, that was going to go on the clown shoe, actually, E3. Nobody's ever done it. I, like, I can't find one anymore. Nobody's ever done it. 
it. I mean, even BMW hasn't done it, and they do crazy swaps all the time. They did a uh, they did a V12 and a Z3 Roadster. That's how I know it's going to fit. So I still might do it. I don't know. I mean, what this is. And we'll have you on. We're going to do a BMW owners episode. Good, bad, and indifferent. What do you think of the new BMWs? That- huh. I like I like the M2s. They're really really sweet. The M8s are also. They're, I mean, they're all fast. You know, they're all they're all fast. As far as what well, the way they, they're never going to look like an an old an older BMW. They're never going to to me. They're never going to be a classic like what these ones are. Obviously, in time, yeah, they're going to be a classic because somehow they revolutionized the car community. I guess you could say. But as far as like an E39 M5, I don't think there's any M5 that compares. And that's even been I think it's car and driver, road and track. One of them said the E39 M5 is the best driver sedan you can buy. And then the E46 M3 is the best driver's car you can buy. But like the modern M3, it's not that I don't like that it's four-door, but and I can't say the M3s have only been coupes, but it's kind of like they throw their numbers off in general. It's not like they've been 100% accurate the whole time, but it's now they have, I think it's a 328s or 2.0 four-cylinder turbo. And then you have a 335 is a three-liter turbo. And it's just, it just, they throw it all off. That and they'll throw an M badge on just about anything. Yeah, and that, you know, it used to be that it was just the, just some of the other guys that would just put M badges on them just to try to be cool. Because well, originally the M was a performance car. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, yeah. The M badge was a sign of performance. And everybody wanted to do the clone. So everybody's like, ooh, that's an M. Right. But and now... So now it's like they don't even, they'll put an M badge on everything. I mean, you can have an MX1. I mean, it's it's crazy. And they're front wheel drive. M235i comes to mind, right? You're like, what is that? Yeah, I don't know. I guess it's supposed to be four man's M2. I don't know. I'm sure it's quick. And I mean, I'm sure all of you guys know as well as I do. Anything coming from Germany is a pretty, pretty stout machine. It's, they're all they're all well built. The, the new Supra, I kind of like it. I know I'm probably going to have Toyota fans hate me for saying that. But I mean, I do like it. But it is basically w z4 yeah oh yeah i mean that's okay i call it the zupra with the z yeah, the zupra. Yeah, it's, the zupra. it's been proven that i think like 90 percent of the components on it have the bmw logo so i think the new the new bmw is cool they have some pretty cool things i like the heated and air-conditioned cup holders that's pretty cool uh the x7 has that if i had all the money to spend and i had to get like a new big suv i would probably buy the x7 because it, it just looks freaking cold. You just want your drinks to stay cold. I want my drinks to stay cold. You know, when you're when you're going down the road, you got a beer. You get, it's got to stay cold. You know. <laughs> Do you follow BMW in motorsport, like in IMSA and stuff like that, or not really? Not really. I, I don't. The only thing I follow is dirt racing. You know, and then what you guys do. Like local road tour stuff. But as far as I mean, I just, like I seen the 24 Hours of Daytona. I seen BMW was one on that. When they, I think this was like the first year of them bringing that M8 out too. This is the last year of the M8. They actually retired it because I think they were tired of all the internet memes showing the M8 trying to swallow other cars on track because it's like a school, <laughs> it's like a school bus compared to everything else out there. But it did swallow everything else on the track. It's kind of... It did surprisingly well. They did. I think the big disappointment there, not to get off topic, is the Corvette. But we'll, we'll talk about that at a later date. I love Corvette. Yeah. But no, I, I, I like them. I mean, I think they're all right. They just don't look... The looks aren't there. It's just to me, the looks aren't there. Very cool. I think this has been a real interesting segment. I mean, I appreciate you guys for having me. You know, when Dan asked me, I was like, that's kind of just out of the blue. <laughs> you know? But it was it was nice. We got to speak with Jared here Luckily, they were generous enough to become sponsors for us in the club, and it's been a very positive relationship between the club and Garrett and 
all of those things. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with the the racer connection, right? Us coming to you guys, yeah. saying, hey, we got race cars, and then you said, yeah, well, we have house race cars too, and so we yeah. bonded over that. So. And on that note, I think, gentlemen, it is time to end. I appreciate you both coming on today. I think this has been really cool. It's going to be a new experience for all of our listeners. Hopefully, they learn something new. And if there's follow-on questions, we'll definitely get them to you, Garrett, and we'll we'll see where it goes. And congratulations again on your win, and we wish you the best of luck on whatever's left of this season. Yeah, um, and if anything else, we're definitely rooting for you in 21. So good luck. Thank you. And for our listeners, uh, find a local dirt track, get out there and experience it and yeah. see what it's all about. Yeah. 100%. If you like what you've heard and want to learn more about GTM, be sure to check us out on www.gtmotorsports.org. You can also find us on Instagram at Grand Touring Motorsports. Also, if you want to get involved or have suggestions for future shows, you can call or text us at 202-630-1770 or send us an email at crewchief at gtmotorsports.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, listeners. Crew Chief Eric here. Do you like what you've seen, heard, and read from GTM? Great. So do we. And we have a lot of fun doing it. But please remember, we're fueled by volunteers and remain a no annual fee organization. But we still need help to keep the momentum going so that we can continue to record, write, edit, and broadcast all of your favorite content. So be sure to visit www.patreon.com forward slash GT Motorsports or visit our website and click in the top right corner on the support and donate to learn how you can help.